Well, good morning. Please turn with me in your copy of the scripture to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. As we continue on together through this letter, through this epistle. Coming out of chapter 5 that we just heard read, Paul writes, starting in verse 1. Working together with him, then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time I listened to you. In a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger by purity and knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love by truthful speech and the power of God with weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise. We are treated as impostors and yet are true as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold, we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return... I speak as to children, widen your hearts also. One main point of this passage seems fairly clear. As an upright and bona fide ambassador for Christ on their behalf, the Corinthians owe Paul their personal affection. Seems to be pretty clearly the point. As an upright and bona fide ambassador for Christ on their behalf, the Corinthians owe Paul their personal affection. So recall that Paul is making an apologetic for the nature of his apostolicity, for his apostleship. Why is he speaking so authoritatively? Why is he speaking so commandingly as an apostle? He's giving an apologetic for that. And if you recall, it actually starts, this is, this is important, turn back with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. So you can understand where this text that I just read is situated within this apologetic. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12, listen to this. He says, when I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. And then we continue reading, and here's what happened in Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the grace of the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. We are the aroma of Christ to God. He goes on. He didn't say anything about Macedonia. What happened? What happens? And he takes almost a five-chapter, not-so-technical term, rabbit trail, more technical term, excursus, to defend his authority as an apostle. So follow with me. You skip back over. So there it is. We leave off at Macedonia. Titus 
Skip over to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. He concludes the apologetic at verse 4 of chapter 7. I'm acting with great boldness towards you. I have great pride in you. I'm filled with comfort in all of our affliction. I'm overflowing with joy. And then what do you get in verse 5? For even when we came into Macedonia. Oh, now we're picking back up right with Macedonia. Let's continue reading. Our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts a downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. Oh, now we're getting the picture of Titus comes back into the picture. Macedonia, discussion of Titus, long, long excursus, defending his apostleship, come back to Macedonia and Titus. And so this passage that we're reading is the climax of this apologetic. This really is the climax because verse, uh, chapter 6, verses 14 through 18, is, 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 is as uh, Stephen will inform you, is a bit of an enigma. It doesn't seem to fit at all. In fact, if you read the end of that, you just read verse 14. Um, he seems to, right in the middle of his apologetic, start talking about not being unequally yoked with unbelievers. Every commentator who reads this is like, wait, what? And then notice in seven, chapter 7, verse 2, he repeats what he said at the end of uh, the passage I read. Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. He goes right back to the apologetic with this odd. So I say that to say this is the climax of that apologetic that started in chapter 2, defending his authority as an apostle. Okay? And so as an ambassador for Christ, through whom God appeals, Paul says that he, and by extension, his associates, work together, which is just an amazing thing to say, by the way, verse 1 there. They're working together with him. They want to make an appeal here. And the appeal they make is to not receive the grace of God in vain. And we read that, I'm assuming, we want to immediately know two things. Number one, what grace exactly is being discussed? And how do you receive the grace in vain? Those seem to be two pretty good questions when you read the verse, right? But we don't get the answer in full context, full orb answer until we read verse 2. For he says... Why, do you not, why should you not receive the grace of God in vain? Why? Here's why. For he says, and he quotes Isaiah 49.8, In a favorable time I listened to you. In a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. So turn back with me in your copy of the Scripture to Isaiah 49. Just very quickly, very quickly. As we heard read... Isaiah 49 is, one, is addressing the servant. The servant pops up over and over and multiple times in Isaiah. Sometimes it's not clear. Is the servant Israel? Is this someone acting on behalf of Israel? Kind of seems like the same thing. What's going on? But when you get to verse 8, my guess is in your copy of the text, it actually has a, a, a little title or a subtitle. It says, The Restoration of Israel. The restoration of Israel. Well, that's an odd thing for Paul to quote to the Gentile Corinthians, isn't it? Seems odd to me, but this is Paul dropping a theological bombshell, just like he did back in First Corinthians, excuse me, Second Corinthians chapter three, when he said that he's the minister of a new covenant, not of letters written on stone, but of one written on the heart. He makes a big biblical theological move and shift there. 
And here he's doing the same thing. He's saying that the time that was announced to Israel particularly has come. In fact, if you read on, skip down to verse 22 in Isaiah 49. Thus behold the Lord God. Behold, I will lift up my hand to the nations and raise my signal to the peoples and they shall bring your sons in their arms and your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. The nations are, hey, time to come in. Time to come in. They're going to they're gonna be bringing your, 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 your kids, you know, piggyback rides coming in because all things are being restored and the people who oppressed you are going to be judged. What an amazing promise for people who are in exile. Remember, exile is part of Isaiah, written to people who are in exile. What an amazing promise. There is a time is coming. There's a time coming. There's going to be a favorable time. I'm going to restore you. It's going to involve the Gentiles. When can we expect that to happen? And the amazing thing Paul says here is, now. Now. That's when. Behold. The favorable time Isaiah was talking about, verse 2, is now. Now is the day of salvation. So now we're in a place to answer our two questions. Coming out of chapter 5, but also with the background of Isaiah 49, what is the grace? It is the grace of restoration, reconciliation, promised salvation, finally brought and announced to the church at Corinth by yours truly, the Apostle Paul, the ambassador for Christ, urging people to be reconciled to God. That's the first answer in light of the larger context. What does it mean to receive in vain? Remember, receive is the same word that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where he says, I delivered as of first importance what I also received. Something that he was told, something that was passed along to him, that tradition. Uh, the very early tradition there, 1 Corinthians 15. What is receiving the grace of God in vain in this context? It means I'm listening to Paul. I'm understanding the message. I understand who Paul is in God's redemptive plan, bringing this gospel to the Gentiles. I understand what he's saying, but I'm not taking action. I receive the word. I hear it. I understand it. But I don't take action. Why is that problematic? Because the time is now. Because now is the time. That's why. Because the time is now. Receiving God's grace in vain in this particular passage is hearing the message, reading it even, that the long-awaited day has come, that reconciliation is possible, that Christ has died, that Christ has been raised, that we are the righteousness of God, and going, okay, what's for lunch? All right, that's interesting. I do appreciate that perspective. That's an interesting perspective. Kind of move on. I'll try to, you know, I'll try to shape up morally. It's not responding. It's receiving the grace of God in vain. This during this window of opportunity that has a shelf life. He's already told them that. The shelf life on the opportunity. Because one day this same Christ is coming back. He says, we want to urge you to not receive the grace of God in vain. Don't do it. Don't do it. You say, well, maybe we would. We need to take advantage of this time if you know, there weren't because of, you know, it wasn't because of certain obstacles in our way. And Paul goes, makes very clear that insofar as there are any kind of obstacles, they aren't his problem. They are not his fault. He did not bring them about. Verse 4, 
excuse me, verse 3, we put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. Some of your translations read, we give no offense so our ministry can't be discredited. He's saying, listen, to whatever extent you have hindrances to, to taking action or belief, we haven't put obstacles in your way. We haven't done anything unnecessarily to prevent you from hearing the gospel, and we're going to see later at the end of the passage, embracing us personally. We haven't. We have been above bar here. We have acted uprightly towards you. Even if you don't like me, that's still true. Even if I've rubbed you the wrong way. I mean, that's what Paul's saying. And you, you, you do have to stop it. You can't just rush past this. You've got to feel a little bit of the tension here. Because I think most people, would, would, you know, if this were a conversation you were witnessing, you know, after church today or something, you, I think people have a tendency to look and say, well, Paul's being defensive. I mean, listen, he's quite literally saying, um, I didn't do anything wrong. What I'm saying is right. And as he's going to say it, sell later, you're actually the one who has the problem. Now imagine you know, resolving conflict in your home with your spouse like that. Honey, I have to be honest. Let me just say, I hear you out. But I'm right, and you're wrong. Um, because the truth is on my side, and you actually have a problem. Um, don't go do that, by the way. I just ask you to imagine it. Not, not, not consider that as pastoral counsel, okay? But do you feel some of the tension there? You've got to understand the tension, the dynamic of what Paul's doing. Now, the reason he can do this, and part of the whole reason he's arguing for this, because he's an apostle. He's like, yes, like, I have a right to say this because of who I am. I am an upright and bona fide ambassador of Christ. I've been appointed for a certain task. So I can step up and say things and know things that you just can't. Were you appointed to this task, Corinthians? No, you weren't. I was. That's what he says. Paul isn't being defensive. He's being resilient. You know what the difference is? You know what the difference is? Being defensive is a posture that's designed to protect. Okay? Being resilient is an offensive posture. Overcoming challenges, accusations, misunderstandings because of a genuine concern for the truth and not because of self-preservation or pride. Two different things. Sometimes people struggle to see that distinction and perhaps in practice sometimes it's difficult to see the distinction. But there is a meaningful distinction between adopting a defensive posture out of self-preservation and adopting a resilient posture in pursuit of the truth, saying, hey, I want you with me. I, the truth is pointing in this way. Will you please listen? This is for you. Paul's posture is actually extremely vulnerable despite his resilience. It's amazing. When we get to the end of this passage, it's amazing. You see an apostle almost begging for someone's affection. It's got a, a, a pitiful, almost rhetorical effect. A passionate, but you almost... You almost feel bad for the man at the end of this passage, as we'll see. In verse 4, he introduces the finale. As servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. Now, one commentator points out something very important here, and I'm just going to read his quote because I could, there's, there's no point in trying to improve on it. Listen to what he says. 
It should be noted that Paul does here, and in, and in chapter 4, verse 2, what he says he does not do in chapter 5, verse 12. Okay? Look at verse 12, chapter 5. We are not commending ourselves to you again. Verse 4. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. Huh. Paul. You got to stick to your story, bud. You know, which one is it? This is what this commentator is pointing out. Our difficulty is that we are tuned in to only one side of an argument. It appears that Paul was being criticized for self commendation, but also that the newly arrived opponents there in the church of Corinth actively commend themselves over and against him. So while Paul rejects active self commendation, he expects and hope that the quality of his servant ministry, as he now describes it, will commend him to them as a minister of God. Remember, back in chapter 3, what did he say was his letter of recommendation? The church. He said, do, you think I, do I need a letter of recommendation like these people to have credibility? He's like, you know what I do? It's y'all. You all, I'm not testifying to myself. Y'all, test, y'all are my letter of recommendation. Now he appeals, if, you, if you'll allow me, the second letter of recommendation, and it's my resume. My resume is my letter of recommendation. And he gives a summary of his servant ministry here. And he is going to let it do the talking. Okay? I'm going to do a very good job advancing my slides for you. Apologize. We have here the finale. Now, many of you watch the fireworks on July 4th. And what happens at the end of a fireworks show is, is the finale, as I understand it. And you know that that's about to happen because everyone who has gotten bored with the fireworks um, says, this is the finale. And everyone's like, okay, let's stop. I'll get off Facebook. Just watch for a second. You know, I'll see more explosions. They'll just be in more rapid succession. And in the finale, there's something important that happens. A couple of important factors. Number one, you have just shot after shot after shot, blast after blast after blast. There's a trail up in the sky. Boom, 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 boom. Just all at once. And the finale is not so that you can elegantly uh, analyze each firework. It is to create a cumulative effect that makes you go, whoa. In the case of Nashville, so much whoa, so much smoke, you can't even see the second half of the finale. It's like, are there fireworks back there? I hear noises. But, but so, so it is rapid fire succession of fireworks and explosions, and it's so much that it just creates an effect of whoa, right? That's the idea of the finale, and that's exactly what happens right here. This run that he goes on is an epic finale. But I say that and use that illustration to clarify that probably zooming in and doing a word study of each word probably is not going to serve us well here. Probably misses the point a bit. Well, what's, what's the difference between uh, afflictions and hardships and calamities? What, what's the Greek there mean? So, well, here's what they mean. They mean basically very close to the same thing. That's what. Okay? They could all probably be interchangeably described and describing certain things. This is for rhetorical effect, but this list is broken down, as I understand it, into four sections. So let's look at the sections and walk through some of the list. The first section is nine sufferings that commend. 
This is the finale. Starts with nine sufferings that commend, introduced by what it takes to actually endure them, which is or experience them, which is endurance. That's what he says. By second half of verse four, by great endurance, and then we get in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings. He's been imprisoned. He's been in the middle of riots. There's discussion about what labors is here. Is this him laboring as a tent maker? Is this some other kind of labor? Not really clear. Sleepless nights. Hunger. Nine sufferings that commend him. And there's going to be more sufferings, by the way, brothers and sisters. There's more to go in Paul's career here. All of Asia, 2 Timothy, is going to desert him. Shipwreck, Acts 27. He's just talking about up to this point in his ministry. He's got more ministry to do. Nine sufferings that commend in the first section. After nine sufferings, he fires away again with eight graces that commend. By purity, by understanding or knowledge, some of your translations have. Patience commends me. My kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, truthful peace. The truthful speech, excuse me. And the power of God. Power of God could be the power because of the indwelling Holy Spirit, but he also refers to the gospel as the power of God and believing the gospel, the power of the gospel in Romans chapter 1. He adds these things to his resume as important graces that commend nine sufferings. Wow. Is there anything else? Yes, there's eight graces. Wow, what else is on the resume? I'm glad you asked. He says there's three spectrums here that come in. There are three spectrums here that come in. Verse 7, uh, yes, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. The first spectrum admittedly is the most challenging one to understand. What exactly is going on here? What are the weapons? Because in the Greek, it's three instances of with. Your translation smooths it out for English and says through. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, the other way around. Sorry, I flipped it around. Your translation says with. In the Greek, it's just three instances of through. It says through the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise. They changed it to with to be a, a smoother English reading. So we're asking ourselves, what does it mean here? What are we talking about? There's really two views. What are the righteousness, the weapons of righteousness? What are we talking about? One view says moral purity. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about the pure character of his life. Um, and, and commending that view is his use of the same phrase over in Romans 6.13. That you're not supposed to present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. But um, you're supposed to present your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Instruments, weapons, same word. Weapons for righteousness. It seems to have, it's talking about holiness here. Maybe that's it. Second view is the righteousness of God and what flows from that. Um, in, in other words, it's not my righteous, holy living. It's the righteousness of God in me 
and what that produces, which it will include holy living, but it probably includes a lot more. In support of that, in chapter 10 of 2 Corinthians, same author, same book, we read that the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Okay? Clearly not talking about his ethical behavior, but the power of God. Um, as it turns out, the last grace of the previous section is the power of God, right after the conclusion of chapter 5 that mentions the righteousness of God. So I, in my opinion, uh, it, it, seems, it seems fairly clear when you put the pieces together, make a call, that Paul's talking about the righteousness of God and the power that that brings about. I have the righteousness of God. There was a man who was not sinful, but he was reckoned as sin. So I could have be reckoned righteous. And that is power. That creates power. Second two spectrums there, much more straightforward. Through honor and dishonor. Sometimes we were honored, so much so that sometimes people tried to worship us. Like, not so cool version of honor. Remember Paul and Barnabas? They start worshiping him. They're like, no, where have we gone wrong? This is not it. Dishonor. Through slander and praise. And then we step into the last section. So, Nine sufferings, eight graces, three spectrums, then he caps the finale with seven epic contrasts. Seven epic contrasts. We are treated as imposters and yet true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold, we live. As punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing. Everything. And the question as an interpreter here is, what is the nature of these contrasts? What exactly is the contrast between in each pair, like the first term and the second term? It's a good question. So, so maybe initial suggestion is uh, false appearances versus reality. It's like we're imposters and yet we're true. Oh, okay. Well, that makes good sense. We go through the list. We're unknown and yet well-known, okay, to certain people. Um, as dying, he's just mentioned his body wasting away, and yet we live. We have life in the Spirit. Unfortunately, when you get to the next two, uh, the, that contrast isn't there. doesn't seem to be able to capture the next contrast. As punished, and yet not killed. Okay? Seems as though Paul was actually punished. He gives examples. And yet not killed. In fact, he was stoned. Remember at Lystra? He was stoned. They drug him out for dead. But he wasn't killed. What about the next one? As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. He, is, he, is, that the fault, is that a false appearance? He wasn't ever sorrowful? He's already said he was. It doesn't do well with the, with the next one either. Because it's a contrast not between something about Paul, but the effect of his ministry. As poor and yet making many other people rich. So we're back to square one. What, what are the nature of these contrasts? What, what is being contrasted exactly? Here's a second suggestion, a better one. Uh, maybe what's being contrasted is kind of a physical, natural phenomenon, state of affairs, description of things, with a more spiritual or an inner truth, which also seems initially plausible. Imposters, and yet we're true. We're known, and yet we're well known. 
dying. Behold, we live in the power of the Spirit. As punished, but not yet killed. I don't take it that Paul is saying here we were were punished, but we weren't spiritually killed. It's not a contrast. I was externally, physically punished, but thank goodness we weren't spiritually killed, like innerly killed, you know killed inwardly or something. Seems to struggle there. Struggles with the sixth contrast. My, my suggestion is this. I didn't think any of the commentators were persuasive, which is a dangerous thing to say. But, but hear me out on this. I think the way, as we're listening to this as literature, the contrasts are to be understood as, a, as, contract, as contrastive paradoxes. Paradox. Here's the dif- dictionary definition of paradox. A seemingly absurd or self-contradictory statement or proposition that when investigated or explained may prove to be well-founded or true. Okay? You don't have to talk about the precise relationship between the two. It's just the two of them seem incongruous at some level, incompatible at some level. And that seems to me to do a much better job of capturing what is going on. In fact, um, I think you might say this is a list of seven paradoxes that commit. It fixes the problems here. I was punished, for example. I was stoned. Awesome. That's bad. But I wasn't killed. Well, how does that go together? How do you get stoned and drug out for dead, but you're not killed? Like, what happened? He was on the road the next day, folks. You go read the... I mean, what what happened? It's a paradox. Something that doesn't seem to go together. I'm sorrowful, but I'm always rejoicing. Doesn't seem to go together. I'm poor, yet I'm making many rich. If I'm poor, I don't have enough money for myself. How am I making a bunch of other people rich? Again, things that initially seem incongruous, regardless of the precise relationship between the two. No, it's appearance versus reality. No, it's external versus internal. Here it is. It's, it's two, things, it's par- two things that are paradoxical for one reason or another. That's the contrast. To say that we have to have one specific kind of contrast that governs the whole thing squeezes the text too hard. We're imposters and yet true. We're unknown and yet well-known as dying. And yet we live as punished and yet not killed. Sorrowful, yet still always rejoicing. Poor, yet making many rich. This ministry of the gospel as having nothing yet possessing everything. And so he ends the finale and gives some practical application and he's about to get very, very human. Very human. He says, we have spoken to you, verse 11, freely. Corinthians. You notice at the bottom of your page, you probably have a superscript, that we have spoken freely to you as a Hebraism. It's literally our mouths are open to you. We have been candid. We have said everything to you. And notice how he says Corinthians. He's being particularly direct and poignant. He doesn't do that. You don't see that. And something of you, Philippians, you Ephesians, where you hear about it, if you remember, is in Galatians. Galatians 3.1, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? He's being very poignant right here. Calls them by name, the Corinthians. He says, our mouths are open to you. We've spoken freely. We've declared everything. 
our heart is enlarged for you and towards you. Our heart is wide open. It's translated there. And then he shifts to describing them in verse 12. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. It literally reads, as one commentator points out, in the original languages, you are not constricted by us, but you are constricted in your bowels. The heart and seat and compassion and emotion. The verb stenokarain means to narrow, to cramp, to constrict. We have this expression narrow-minded, but not the expression narrow-hearted. And therefore, we need to adopt another figure of speech to express affection and loss of affection. Their love has grown cold. While he professes that he still loves them and with heated passion, he has opened his heart to them. They have closed theirs and in effect squeezed him out of their hearts by treating him with distrust and suspicion. And he concludes with a humble exhortation that has the feel of a very vulnerable, perhaps even desperate plea. Don't let the formal language widen your heart fool you. You have to feel this one at the at, feel this one in the context. In return or in fair exchange, I speak as to children, which is not diminutive. This is not like I speak to a ch- child who I speak. I'm not you know speaking to people who don't know what they're talking about. As someone who does, this is fatherly father to child language. This is tender language. I speak as to children. Widen your hearts also. Toward us. Implied kind of ellipsis there. Widen your hearts toward us. So the effect is this. After we have come to the end of this. And he's saying, I'm an ambassador for Christ. I've conducted myself rightly before you. Okay, I haven't taken, I haven't put obstacles in your way. I haven't caused you to stumble. I haven't given you reason for offense or discredit my ministry. I love you. I pray for you. I brought the gospel for you, to you. I'm, I'm concerned for you. My mouth is open to you. My heart is open to you. Can you please find it in your heart to give me some of your affections? I risk this analogy because I don't want to be flippant, but, but we all know the example of like the teenage boy who infatuated with some girl who mistakes it for love. Just trying to say anything to get her to reciprocate some feelings. You're the air I breathe, whatever it is. Um, Just saying anything, put everything out there. Can you please just, do you have any room in your heart for me? Well, Paul is certainly not some pubescent teenage boy telling people that they are the air he breathes. But the feel of this plea, at the context at the end of this, is a desperate plea. Do you have any, can, do you have any love for me? I, I can't do anything else. Like, I, this is it. I've done everything correctly. I love you. Do you. Can you please widen your heart? Figure of speech. Can you please literally enlarge your heart for me? Can I have some affection? Can I have some real estate in your heart? Please. At the end, I don't know what else. I've I've, I've given you everything that I have. Do you have anything for me in return? There is a feel of 
a humility of an apostle saying this. Widen your hearts. Why? Because as an upright and bona fide ambassador for Christ on their behalf, the Corinthians owe Paul their personal affection. That's why. As we look in on this interaction, what do we take away? What do you and I take away? A couple of things. Number one, have you received the grace of God in vain? Have you heard the good news over and over and over? And maybe you're one of our teens here, who's, who your parents, they bring you to church faithfully. Maybe you don't want to be here. Maybe you do want to be here. I don't know. You have heard the gospel proclaimed over and over and over and over and over. You have received this word, just like the Corinthians did. You have received it over and over and over. Now is the favorable time. Now is the time to repent and believe. Do not receive the grace of God in vain. Of course, that doesn't just apply to teens. It applies to anyone who has received the message over and over and over. Anyone who could say, I have a clear understanding of it and, and has not responded appropriately to it. But secondly, in what areas do you tend to lapse into claiming God's grace in vain? So, so I haven't taken God's grace in vain because I've repented and believed the gospel. And yet, because of indwelling sin, there are pockets of my heart that still act like I've taken God's grace in, in vain. What pockets of my heart tend to kind of wave at the gospel as it goes by? Huh? What, or maybe to switch, what apartment unit in your heart complex easy, uneasily receives the gospel as a, as a guest for a few hours on Sunday morning? And then make sure it sees itself out that particular unit. Because that's an uncomfortable one. That's the one that I'm not really sure I want anyone to know about. This is the secret sin that I like. Um, this is an area, I'm, I, I'm, all, I'm open to the gospel and all these other units. Come in, make your bed here, stay here, inhabit this unit. What about this little area of your life or this? No, this is, gospel's a house, a little a guest in this one. I uneasily entertain it when I hear it. And then I just kind of, all right, time to go, time to move on. Was that for you? Maybe it's putting to death some sin. You don't think that's a big deal? I'll just keep it between me and God. Pray for grace. Again, you haven't responded to God's call of salvation in Christ with inaction. But there are areas where you need to take gospel-empowered action and respond. Gospel has not completely saturated your heart. And by the way, that's everybody. No one has a completely gospel-saturated heart. And if you think you do, that's where I would start, by the way. Why do I believe something so patently false about myself? Second, where do we have or where do we have need to widen our heart towards other Christ followers? And this is where it gets real. Well, not real, just more awkward. Context, of course, here, just to be clear. Christ followers who haven't wronged us. That's what Paul's talking about. It's the phenomenon. I'm not talking about someone who hurt you, did you wrong, whatever. Christ followers who haven't wronged us and who have even treated us well. They've been kind to us. 
We don't have any reason to dislike them or whatever. Or at least claim a wrong. But I will tell you this. And Ben and Stephen and I have talked about this ad nauseum. Through a polarizing election cycle, issues of justice, and a global virus all at the same time, the verdict of the last two or two and a half years is in. And it is unmistakably clear. When it comes to other believers occupying real estate in their heart, a lot of Christians are extremely niche market landlords. They only rent to a very exclusive base of potential tenants. So here's what that looks like in practice. Well, are they a, are they a Christian? Yeah, they're oh yeah, they're a Christian. Why well, have they wronged you? No, 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 no. They've never, they've never just said anything wrong me. They've actually been kind to me. Okay, so you've got room for affection for them in your heart, right? Well, the thing is, you know, their Facebook posts rubbed me the wrong way. You know, the thing is, I happen to know that they voted for this political candidate. Well, they just had, I didn't, I didn't like their response to COVID. I mean, they wore their mask in the car. Who does that? You know, I just struggle because they understand the structure of racism in America differently than I do. I just struggle because they watch Fox News. Well, I struggle because they watch CNN. Well, I struggle because they just, you know, I just feel like they're a little bit liberal. Well, I just feel like this person's just a little too conservative. They just repeat traditions they learned in the Southern Baptist Convention. Well, no, I just feel like this person doesn't take this thing kind of seriously. Well, I think that their social interaction, they just seem a little bit sometimes edgy or obnoxious. Well, uh, blah, and on, and on, and on. And on and on. And a million reasons why this person is a believer in Christ. We're going to spend eternity together. They've never even wronged me. Perhaps they've done nothing but kind to me. But if I'm honest in the quiet of my heart, I'm saying, I just can't find myself to have a lot of affection for that person. Why? So here's the honest question. Must everyone who has allowed real estate in your heart qualify for their space by abiding by all of your personal terms, conditions, and preferences for occupancy? And by real estate in your heart, I don't mean, when I say widening your, when Paul says widening your heart, real estate in your heart, I'm not talking about uh, manufacturing interpersonal chemistry. Don't try to do that. I'm not even talking about being friends. I'm talking about, do you have genuine affection, genuine love, for other believers who haven't wronged you, have likely been kind to you simply because you disagree with them on certain things or certain areas or because their personality rubs you the wrong way or because they've said things that come across the, the wrong way but nothing was wrong with what they said. If you're someone who's honest enough to confess, yeah, I struggle to be a very niche market landlord, a heart landlord, what do you need to do to widen your heart? To not have only affection for a small little exclusive club of Christians that you think are the faithful ones. Because trying harder hasn't been cutting it, has it? Hard questions that we all need to ask ourselves. Do we only have affection for people who we would say are in our tribe on every single issue? Widen your heart. That's the call here. It's a hard word. It's a good word.
as an upright and bona fide ambassador for Christ on their behalf. The Corinthians owe Paul their personal affection. In light of the gospel, to whom do we owe ours? And toward what fellow Christ followers might we need to enlarge our hearts? Let's pray. God, thank you for saving people with blackened, sinful hearts, transforming their hearts, crediting us with righteousness. We pray, Lord, that someone who hears the gospel does not receive it in vain this morning. That Christ, fully God, fully man, has come. He's lived a perfect life we were supposed to live, died a death that was meant for us, was raised to life as a guarantee of our inheritance. He's put away sin. He opens his arms to us, extends his hand, repent and believe, follow me. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Pray, Lord, that this gospel that is preached from this pulpit over and over and over is not received in vain. And that we'll ask ourselves genuine questions about whether we need to widen our hearts towards brothers and sisters in Christ. Give us grace in Jesus' name.